Hello, friends, near and far. Welcome to a fresh episode of the Wicked Podcast. Das Gift is our pub-turned-studio, our beloved venue and sponsor, a bar and cultural haven in Berlin's Neukölln district. Come by and grab a pint if you're in town or attend one of the weekly spoken word poetry events. For those of you listening for the first time, you should know that the Wicked Podcast is a community podcast focused on deconstructing broad topics in order to evoke imaginative insights. And we do this as a collective of amateurs rather than experts, and to that extent, we are the anti-podcast, celebrating experimentation and independent thought. I'm your host, Steve Nahai, and joining me today are three creative minds who I welcome to our small arena with open arms. Let's have a round of brief introductions before we begin. Who's with us on this lovely Saturday? Hello, everybody. My name is Jamila Roshani. Um, I'm a poet, writer, and performer based in Berlin, um, also originally from Berlin, um, though I haven't lived here my entire life, but um, that's me. Hi, I'm Olivia Burza. I'm a fine artist, painting mostly at the moment, but also writing poems, um, video and installation, and all other kinds of kind of media, I guess. And I am kind of new to Berlin. It's, I think, eight months now. I'm from South Africa, and I'm busy doing um, an artist residency here for one year. So who knows? Might stay longer. We'll see. Hi, my name is Naniso. Um, I am a Berlin-based uh, author, academic, uh, and just general fun guy. Uh, yeah. Um, as always, thank you all for participating. The last time that we deviated from our usual course of very broad themes uh, was during the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, which also carried the subtopic of uncertainty. Uh, it's fitting and worrisome that exactly two years later, we must revisit contemplating the fate of large populations of people. Um, I often allude to intersecting crises during our episodes, and I'm beginning to feel like a defeatist, which isn't my nature. Uh, darkness isn't something I wish to emphasize, rather utopian visions. But I do believe that such work requires looking into the mouth of the beast to understand the nature of why troubling events occur, persist, or in this case, resurrect. As many news outlets have reported, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is the biggest attack on a European state since World War II, uh, a sentiment that feels like an echo from 2020 when then-German Chancellor Angela Merkel stated that COVID was the greatest threat since... World War II. We typically think of physical war, on Western soil at least, as primitive behavior we've overcome. War belongs to the industrial age. It's clunky, destructive. We've got iPhones and cryptocurrency now, self-tying shoes. It weighs on the soul. And as much as I want to believe we're on a mature track to evolved living, the 21st century has been dubbed an era of uncertainty since its beginning. My own memories of Y2K and 9-11 are deeply entrenched, those gut-wrenching feelings of having reached a hazy impasse, the Iraq war, Saddam and his alleged nukes, 
global warming crept into my university lectures. I watched as the 2008 recession smothered the career prospects of close friends. Then came Occupy Wall Street, riding the coattails of the Arab Spring Revolt, uh, and the countless doomsayers preaching a Mayan apocalypse in 2012. Remember that? Though the sky hasn't split open, civilization has continued to face climate disaster, socio-political unrest, mental health crises, a pandemic, and now war. The elders might say that life has always been unpredictable. War, in particular, was a fact of life for eons and eons. The bubonic plague wiped out a third of the European population. The Great Depression left families penniless, scavenging for food. Uncertainty has always existed. We've got to live with it. So why then does uncertainty feel extraordinarily pervasive at this point in history? Could it be the ubiquitous media channels bombarding us 24-7? Are we perhaps experiencing the effects of an accelerated pace of change? What are your thoughts, friends? Yeah, I try to kind of limit um, the amount of news and all these kind of things because it's even though it's important to definitely stay in touch with everything, I've definitely, especially with COVID, I mean, I could feel this intensity and how quickly everything's happening um, and it just doesn't seem to end. So I think being bombarded by the news is definitely one factor for me that I've been trying to kind of consume within reason and not um, be consumed by it. I mean, I, I, I do um, agree and to some extent also share the same sentiment, but I think... It's also interesting to look at what the media is focusing on and what not, right? Mm -hmm. So with the outbreak of the, the Ukrainian invasion now, um, this constant like bombarding of information, right, and live streams and everything um, that has felt very overwhelming to some extent was, was interesting to see how that has never been happening, you know, when you compare it to other um, wars and crises that have been happening the past uh, years and decades. Yeah. So I think to some extent for me, there was also like, you know, a, a portrayal of these double standards that... Um, we also live in, right? Um, and I'm not sure how to link this now to, to your question, the theme, but I think when it comes to media and how, how I try to consume it, um, it's not just what we are constantly confronted with, but also what we're not confronted with, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, first of all, a great introduction, Steve. Um, I've missed you. I filled in as host uh, last month, and I realized how bad I was. Uh, so thank you for the introduction. Uh, I respectfully disagree with both of you. <laughs> As always. As, um, I don't understand when was there a time that things were certain. It, we've always been in a state of uncertainty. And I'm, I, I'm, I've been asking myself questions. Why the war in Ukraine uh, has changed certain things and how it's been experienced differently? Is it because it's happening so close? Is it because it is... Uh, the race of the people who are being, is it their religion? What is it that makes us feel so uh, close to it, affected by it? I mean, there were people, you know, a couple of months ago, whenever they were saying they were not leaving their house in Berlin because of the war in Ukraine. And I, <laughs> I mean, I'm not trying to obviously minimize or marginalize what's actually been happening. I just didn't, I don't understand that. This idea that there was a time 
you know, like, you know, make America great again. When was it great? Makes, when was the certain time that we kind of in our minds think that they were? Oh, remember when things were certain? There's always been uncertainty. We've always had this anxiety that, you know, there's going to be a, you know, a nuclear holocaust. So there's going to be this, there's going to be that. There's always been something. And I'm not sure if it's necessarily the media and how we consume it today. Um, I, I think that's a factor. But I, yeah, there's something else, I think. Interesting. Do you think it's just, it's always been, like I said, as the elders might say, that uh, things have always been as they are? And I don't know. I feel like every generation says, oh my God, kids are growing up so fast. Like, how fast are they growing? Like, is it just this condition that we live in? That it's, I don't think it's getting faster. I think it's just the very nature of growing up in time. That's how we look at it. I think it's always been uncertain. And I think kids are always just growing. I think we're just getting older. Why are you looking at me when you say that? <laughs> <laughs> me too. I'm getting older. I mean, if I had to think back to, I don't know, my grandmother's like childhood and kind of the, the changes that she went through. And then eventually when she kind of, you know, like the end of her life and the amount of things that happened within her lifetime, I'm sure that must have been extremely intense as well and I think I, I think this maybe comes back to the media and, and this terms of circulating information because it's so quick you know before the internet it would have I don't know been maybe a fax or phone call or you know speaking to someone and reading the newspaper so that's like a bit slower so I think this idea um, of the media definitely and technology making it so accessible and having the phone with you the whole time I mean it's like you sleep with it it's an extension really you know it's like constantly it's the first thing I look at it's or when I wake up it's like it's always there mm. and it doesn't matter where you are even if you're not specifically looking at the news um, it filters through all the other social media so you are still consuming and you're still informed. Um, I mean, that's also like a whole different kind of, I think, way of being informed, but um, let's not go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> but um, Yeah, I think it's just because we're also getting older. Like, I realize that, you know, I'm turning 32 next year. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I'm like, God, I can't believe that. Like, what, what? You know, and this, it's like... I can tell the difference when I look at people who are, I don't know, you know, 10 years younger. I'm like, wow, okay, there's a change in me um, and the generation before me. I can see that. So I think it's just because we're, we're growing up. Like how does getting older, how do you think that the changes occurring in the world might be perceived differently by a person who is in their early 20s as opposed to your age our age or older um does it uh, you think there's a big difference there i think so i mean just like this idea of like i didn't grow up with a smartphone but now you know people who are 10 years younger than me this has been part of their life you know so i think i think there's a big gap from that shift from having a smartphone and having that kind of access so quickly and so easily and I think that's a very kind of hard thing for me to kind of almost grasp is to put myself in in someone's shoes who who were able to grow up with that 
it's just like it's a different reality it's a different reality it's like mm. sci-fi it's like wow mm. okay i'm trying to imagine this and it's like i don't think i can fully ever understand that mm. you know yeah interesting uh you mentioned something about the, when you wake up the first thing you look at is your phone uh how do you switch off and when do you switch off uh i try to put the you know that limit on the screen time <laughs> oh really you got that app no, it's just on my phone. Oh, really? Okay, okay. But I, you know, just sometimes ignore it. Or um, when it's like I have like a, I try to use the, the alarm so that I have like a specific time. So my phone tells me it's time to wind down so you can go to bed and then wake up when you want to wake up. Um, so that's what I try to do. It's discipline. It's self-discipline, but it's really very hard. And I know that I'm addicted and there's like... It's how I also wake up. It's like I need to look at this thing because it stimulates my brain. Then I start thinking or I listen to a song or something or like a quick video. And then I'm like, okay, I'm awake now. You know, it helps me get up. But it's, I don't, I mean, there was a few days that I didn't do that and I felt amazing. Is that when you didn't answer my text messages? (laughs) No comment. (laughs) I want to jump in here because I think um, in as much as I'm also very much like you, right? I'm, I'm waking up with my phone. I'm, I'm, I'm on my phone a lot. Um, I also think I personally appreciate how it gave me the opportunity to literally connect and remain connected to so many people, right? And not just people, but also to different worlds in terms of what we create as artists also, right? The, the spaces that people have created somewhere else in South Africa, right? Mm-hmm. And then the pandemic hit... And then suddenly now the slam is going digital. Mm-hmm. So now we're producing videos every month, you know, and we're trying to, to actually, and in that way, it's, it suddenly became global, right? And it gave me technology and, and not just my phone, but also generally like the ways how we are connected in a virtual space are now giving me possibilities mm-hmm. and opportunities to link up with artists from all over the world, right? And to share stories and to find commonalities and differences and to also grapple with that change together, right? Because I think also... When we speak about change um, and the uncertainty it it may or may not come with, I think um, it's, I mean, there's the change that we are subjected to, right? The world we live in constantly changing. um, I mean, the systems of power constantly evolving, right? Capitalism constantly, like, reinventing itself. Um, But then I think there's also the change that we want to see and that we can actively work towards, right? And I think... To some extent, technology does give us the tools to do that. Um, I don't want to say, you know, there's no dangers in terms of just like data privacy and security and how algorithms are literally Mm -hmm. gathering everything about us and knowing everything about us Mm -hmm. more than we know ourselves. Mm -hmm. But um, I do think, you know, there's something also to be said about the tools that we now have or some of us now have, depending on how privileged we are with access, right? But yeah. No, I mean, I totally agree with you. I think this is um, incredible. Um, 100%. I can't say anything against that. I mean, this is, yeah, it's amazing. Um, but it's for me, it's just interesting to have gone through the transition. I mean, I think I was like mm, almost a teenager or something, like late, you know, like early teens when, when the cell phone came out and it was like this thing um and then just kind of like seeing how 
progressively it's become more part of my life and now it's completely I mean there's no way of going back I don't think you know so it's just interesting yeah yeah but don't you feel like we're uh we're holding ourselves back you know because I I'm, I'm a big fan of phones I want them to integrate them more and more like just plug it into my brain like you know like I'm uh, I'm not there no. I'm, I'm so there like let's make it easier and easier but there is a I think there's we're, we're, we're got this romanticism or this idea of the past where I don't know for example like school or knowledge of like if i need to fix my car i will youtube the video i'll fix the car and then i'll forget exactly what i learned and downloadable knowledge i think is the future and i don't know why we are still teaching kids for 11 years mandatory school information that they will never need or use in their lives like i i know pi you know, 3.14, and I probably could keep going with those numbers. I've never used it. I've never used it. Why did I spend so much time learning it? Why did I spend so much time learning how to handwrite when I don't handwrite? I type. Why are we teaching kids to handwrite so much? Teach them how to type. YouTube that. Like, downloadable knowledge. And I, yeah, I'm, I just don't know why there's that kind of, you know, why are the two spheres of our lives not merging? Yeah, I was just thinking about the war in Ukraine. You're obviously praising technology. Is there a way to introduce more stability? And how, how do you see information or downloadable knowledge assisting with, with, our, with the precarious world as it stands? Any, any thoughts on that? I, I do. I'm aware that the amount of information news I get on a regular basis makes me numb to certain things. Uh, sometimes there's a scandal or there's a war or there's a death and I'm like ah that happened last week you know just because it's constantly information if you know 20 years ago there was a shooting at a school in California I wouldn't know about it now when I read there's a there's a there was a shooting in California I'm like there was actually one last week and last week and last week and it does numb you um, which comes back to that point I was getting to before about you the war in Ukraine maybe that's why I feel Oh, I'm curious about the numbness that I've... I do care, of course, I'm not sure to say. But there is a... Oh, this is... Oh, again, 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 again. And I was curious what you said earlier on about... Sorry, Jamila, what you said earlier on um, about change. And I don't think anything's changing. You know, I just see, you know, the repetition or... I see capitalism, the mechanisms getting a little bit smarter and the techniques and strategies, but... This idea of slavery is still there. This, it's, I just see them repeating. And I'm not sure what you meant by things are changing. I mean, I think, I guess I meant change in the way you just described it, as in there's a repetition of you know, the overall structure, but then the way it does unfold now is different, right? So um, there are no, or very, well, at least not institutionalized, enslaved people in the US anymore, but there's still a system of slavery intact if you look at the prisons, if you look at, you know, the the system that is still but that's what I meant by reinventing itself, right? Like the the power structure itself is still functioning, but in order for it to function it had to reinvent itself and adjust to the current times and to changes that have been made. And I think in that way there's a constant sort of like, you know, movements and counter movements of different poles of power, you know, when there are progressive forces pushing for, you know, the abolition of slavery. Um, 
when that has happened, now there's going to be a counter movement of the system um, of oppression sort of like reshaping itself and trying to um, find different ways of keeping things intact, if that makes sense. Interesting. It's baffling that, uh, you know, as I said earlier, war seems to belong to the industrial age, the early industrial age. How is it with all of our supreme technology that we're revisiting such a disaster, such a, such a force? I mean, yeah, we could go into you know more the more primitive impulses that might lead to such a thing, but it doesn't seem a, little, a bit surprising considering. And I'm looking at you because you're the one who brought technology a bit more central to our war is just, we're revisiting war the world's constantly at war like it's a very western notion that oh there's a war but there's like look at you know the African continent look at you know other places there's war constantly happening and I don't um, I have strong feelings about the except, the European exceptionalism you know because it's here it's it must be real it's a problem when the rest of the world has been dealing with this and I think that there, it's not, I, I, and I agree with you, Jamila, in terms of like how, you know, certain things, certain systems of oppression are reinventing themselves. I just see that technology is a mechanism, a tool that they are using much better than the, the, the other side. You know, the very fact that, you know, the richest man on the planet can buy one of the biggest social media platforms and call it a market for free speech. And go to the fucking moon. It's the, it's the most, I don't know, I, I, it baffles me mm. that, you know, that we think that the world is getting better. And I don't want to sound pessimistic, I'm realistic. Um, I, I have this ongoing conversation with my, one of my friends, um, and I'm just, the world is getting worse. Like, there's nothing that convinces me that the world is getting better. Yeah, and I think if I can jump in here on, on, on the question of technology and why we are at war, even though now we have all these advanced tools, right? I do agree with Nanisa, like technology has always been and is currently used maybe more than ever as a warfare tool, right? And as a system or as, as a tool that can not just oppress and, and, you know, wage war, but also make profits, obviously, right? So I do think um, this idea or this thought that a linear timeline um, leads to you know more progressive events um, eventually, and when we're using technology and when we're like using all these new inventions, we're eventually going to get there. I think that is a very yeah, it's a fallacy. You know, it's yeah. a very Western way of thinking as well because <clears throat> time and progress has never been linear. You know, right? Yeah, it just seems that it's been generally understood that we live in the most peaceful time in human it's true it it, it if you Do look i don't yeah i mean it How depends do we measure this? right yeah we have to look at the, the metrics but speak in terms of wars i mean there were you know i don't have a figure on hand but there were hundreds of wars breaking out um you know all the time war, war was raging across uh we're speaking about europe but uh across the world for millennia uh, so relatively speaking, we, we were experiencing relatively peaceful times. Um. I mean, I was just thinking as well, this, this thing, this repetition, because this is also really something we're living with uncertainty. But like you were saying, you know, the elders were saying, OK, but it was always uncertain. But then there's also a clear repetition 
when we look at history, I mean, yes, we have had wars um, for centuries and we're still having wars. And I have also been thinking, like, is this just part of the human condition that we can't kind of outgrow, that we can't seem to get rid of? Because it's like, how is it possible that we're still engaging in this kind of way? But I don't really think it will ever change. Because if you think about it, it's all about power. And that is the system that's kind of governed human humanity for, you know, as long as the history books have sure. been around, yeah. right? Yeah. So, and I mean, yeah. I don't know. I'm kind of with Naniso. I <laughs> I agree with you. No, for for real though, it's like I don't know. I don't know. Like I also want to say that there has been a lot of incredible and amazing things that technology has brought us. Um, so I can't like take away from that. But at the same time, I'm also this is also why I'm saying this this idea of like the consumption of news and the way that it consumes me. I'm like trying to trying to look at it in a different way. Um, because also I think when we look at news, news is, it's some, it's a business. They need to sell things. They need to sell the information so that we can click on it. And at the end of the day, we are more prone to look at horrible things. When we drive past an accident, we want to see, even if you don't, you're like, what happened? You know, it's like a strange thing. That's just part of the human I don't know psyche but it's also interesting because war it's it's where technology comes from uh walkie-talkies which then later became I think cell phones got I might be completely wrong there but um like drones are now part of the toys that we have at home this was a military um thing equipment that wasn't allowed to be used for civil people. So, uh, and these dogs, robot dogs thingies, I mean, they're crazy. Robot <laughs> dog thingies? They dance and they do all kinds of crazy stuff. You have to see it. It's insane. It's like quite scary. Yeah. And um, anyway, so I'm guessing, you know, probably some, I don't know, maybe Elon Musk might have one as well because, you know, if you're the richest man in the world, you probably have these quirky things too. I don't know. But so it's like this kind of interesting um, push and pull between how war is also advancing technologies and then how that is fed back into consumerism. And we consume that because who doesn't have a smartphone or a smartwatch or some sort of, you know, people, it's like, let's get a drone because it's can do all these amazing things. That's great. You can, but it's also like, okay, where did it come from? I mean, I love, I, uh, maybe there are two points I want to touch on, uh, which you said the first is I, I'm a big, uh, science fiction nerd. I love science fiction. And uh, for example, I, I watch, uh, you know, everyone watches Star Trek and I'm fascinated by this idea of this future and where the technology is so amazing, they can go at light speed, they can, they can teleport, they can make, replicate food, they can do all these things. And whenever the subject of war, hunger, inequality comes up, they always just say, yeah, we solved that problem. Yeah. And they never explain how they solved that problem. And I think the truth is that 
we're not gonna be. There's not gonna be like a point where we just say we solved it. You because it's not something you can solve. That was the first thing. The second thing is, and the three of us are very connected to South Africa, um, and obviously you know the history of South Africa with apartheid, with you know white minority rule, uh, and how you know people of color were treated during that time uh, for you know forty years uh, was apartheid. I was ashamed in 2008 when we had the xenophobic riots of um, black South Africans against, um, you know, uh, migrants from Zimbabwe or, or in certain other African countries. And I remember thinking, we should know better. And that idea of repetition of things repeating, I think will just keep happening because we do forget what just happened. And... If, and, I, and I use the example of South Africa because we know it, but I think that happens elsewhere and everywhere. This is not South Africa is exceptional or unique. It just happens constantly, you know. Um, I, and I don't. I could go, give so many examples, uh, but I think we have frail memories, and those intentionally frail, like intentional amnesia. Um, which relates to your point where you're saying about technology and the news we, we read, we intentionally choose to read and follow or to stop at certain accidents where other accidents we don't. Um, and that's, it's intentional, it's willingness, a desire to just look at certain things. Um, yeah, our need to focus on tragedy and terrible events is, is also primitive primitively based right because there's there's a need to know where the danger is uh, so that we can protect ourselves so if something bad has happened we want to know where when why how and then we have tools to and you know better ensure our, our own survival um i just also want i was thinking about what you said naniso about the idea of repetition you know, that we don't learn from history is it possible that we are learning from history uh, it's simply that big changes require more time to to fully occur. Like there might be a ripple effect where each ripple becomes a little lighter, smaller, subtler each time until things do actually smooth out over longer periods of time. Do you feel that there could be truth to that? Um, would you be able to give me an example of that? I, sure. Uh, women's rights or any right, the rights of any human being, the, the, uh, oppressed human, you know, whether it be race, uh, sex, there have been gradual changes, freedoms, not, um, not across all groups, not across the entire spectrum. But I do feel that we, we are living during times of equality that are unmatched uh, compared to any other point. In, in history. I, I would say war as well. Um, as I mentioned earlier, there were hundreds of wars. War was a daily occurrence every continent. Um, now we're seeing it, of course, but not quite in the numbers that we used to. So looking ahead another 100 years at equality and war, is it possible that we will have achieved something a little more closely aligned with your uh, science fiction you know, fantasy. And uh, yeah, I mean, can you imagine the year 2100, 2200? There's just one thing with science fiction movies. They always have war. There's always the monster that they need to try and kill, isn't it? 
Yeah. So I don't know, like, what does that say? I don't know. <laughs> what does that say? I mean, yeah, I, I, how can I say this? I don't think we're going to make it uh, to the future. Um, okay. I'm not really convinced um, that we will. And what it will require is something just huge to force us. Uh, I mean, force us to have to change. Um, I take an example of, you know, uh, climate change, you know, or, or water, for example. I believe that I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not going to say I'm super woke. I, I'm not asleep, but I'm, I'm in the middle, you know, I'm conscious. And yet, and I'm aware of climate change and how me having a 15-minute shower is not a good thing. But I still have a 15-minute shower. And the only way that that's going to change is if there was a rule, a law, or the finances made the fact that I couldn't have a 15-minute shower. I'm, I'm ashamed, of, I'm, uh, but I'm being honest about it. And I think it's gonna, we need to be forced to make certain changes because we won't do it on, just on ourselves. And the reality of, of it is that we live in a world where, you know, unless those, you know, those you know, 100 billionaires in the world you know, decide differently or are afraid of something, the world's not going to change because they're still going to be on their island. You know, it's like that movie with Matt Damon, Elysium, you know, where the rich people are just like, all right, we're going to go and, you know, build a, like, we're going to live on the moon. And these people are just, and that's, that's literally what climate change is going to do to the world. So I don't think we're going to make it. And if we do, we're not all making it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I do think there's a huge danger of, individualizing change, right? And the responsibility for change. So I think this idea of us just having to consume more, you know, in a more sustainable manner, you know, more green capitalism, but still capitalism, right? Uh, you taking your shower, not 15 minutes, but maybe 10 minutes. And in that way, you know, we're going to save the planet. I mean, I think there's, there's, that's one of the fallacies that liberalism and, and, and liberal capitalism sort of like sells us constantly. You, you, can, you, can, you can continue doing what you do, but just do it more sustainably, right? And I think the crux of the matter is that the whole system, the way it's set up, doesn't work. And unless we change that at the roots of it, right, there's not going to be anything gained by us, you know, using a bit less or a bit more water or, you know, buying something that's been... Um, I don't know, not shipped around the whole globe, but maybe, I mean, I'm not saying these things are not worth anything, but I think it will remain insufficient if we don't also grasp things at the root, you know, which is the whole way industries work, you know, and transnational corporations are operating um, and not just us as individuals. I disagree with you. Mm. The system does work. It works perfectly yeah, but not for, for the people us. who built yes, it yes. and the people who benefit from sure. it. And that's not going to change. Yeah. And that's why I don't think we're going to make it to the future because the system, like, take, I don't know, the United Nations, right? Mm, mm. This, you know, paradigm of, of nation community, right? Of nations working together. The Security Council is just the perfect example of how things are not going to change. You have, what is it, seven, six, seven countries who decide everything. But I didn't say we've got to change it through these institutions. We have to change it differently. I'm just saying. How? Revolutions. Would you? Okay. Would you, uh, oh wow. Okay. Now we're all right. Now okay. We're okay. Now we're getting. I was trying to do is take the guilt <laughs> away from you of having a 15-minute shower because I think you know that's not how we should move. You know, towards a different future. Feeling guilty about how we live and then seeing that as the only possible way to change, right? Because I think that's a trap. 
But I, I think the example I gave about the shower was more to allude to my morality in terms of I should know better and yet I still do it. And when we talk about the world changing, if all situations, I, if we each know better and yet we're still doing it, does that not show us that the world is not getting better? Because if you know something, you still do it versus not knowing and doing something or that innocence, I, I, feel, I think that makes us worse as a species. Okay, I mean, I think, you know, this is maybe a bit more slightly, not completely off the topic, but I was talking to a friend yesterday about this idea of, you know, relationships and um, she was saying about someone she likes and, and this idea of, like, change, needing for him to kind of change a bit. And, I mean, of course, I've been in the same position where I'm like, God, if only this person can change a bit, you know, it'd be great, things would be better. And then I think, my God, it's so difficult for me to change something that I want to change. It is so hard. If I want to really get up in the morning a bit earlier, it's hard. If I want to eat a bit healthier, it's hard. If I, you know, say I'm, you know, whatever, not going to drink so much, and then I end up drinking a lot, and then I have a cigarette, it's hard because I'm like, I really don't want to do that. But it's like, it's, it is a choice somehow, in a way. Um, and we do, we can change it. I mean, I've been able to change, but it's fucking hard. Changing a whole system that's been also for centuries, like how, and maybe this is the ripple effect that you're talking about, Steve, but it's like, it will take very long. And I don't think we have that time. And with COVID, we saw, and this is where we were enforced to not leave our houses, not go to work. Now we have working from home, which is incredible, thanks to technology. This is made much easier. And we see different ways of working. And, I mean, pollution went down. We had, like, I think Beijing or somewhere, it was, like, had good air quality again. And, like, amazing things happened very quickly. And we could see if we, all, if we were forced this would happen, which is what you were saying, Naniso. It's like, basically, you need to be forced to change, yeah. right? Which a lot of people also don't want to do with, say, vaccinations. They don't want to get the vaccination. Okay, sure, that's your choice. Okay, but, you know, what's going to happen then? And, you know, I think, yeah, people are not going to want that either. I do agree with something Jamila said about um, getting to the root causes of the problem. You know, uh, I, I, you know, gay marriage. The the issue is not, for, as I see it, that whether you know men can marry men or women can marry. The marriage is the problem. You know, it shouldn't. That's not, and we. I think we get distracted by this fight when actually this is the problem. Is the marriage the institution and. Often we get involved in these petty discussions or problems when, you know, I don't want to make a Game of Thrones illusion or metaphor, but I'm going to, yeah. you know, it's not who's sitting on the throne. It's the fact that there is a throne and you need to tear that down. I think this is also a perfect example of how the system of, in this case, marriage, right, and institutionalized nuclear families, which benefit capitalism, right, in terms of someone staying at home, taking care of the kids, someone else making the money, but then there's all this unpaid labor that's also, you know, being put into into the equation. Um, I think in that sense, you can see how it reinvents itself, because 
it got to a point where people were literally like we're not we're not having this anymore right we're not like we we are advocating for more freedom in terms of how we can live and how we can form our own personal um relationships and then at one point you know institutions in the state would just be like okay cool let's give these queer people you know the right to marry as well so that now the system can still be intact but in a way where and i mean it always as you say like people anyone should be able to marry anyone but also you don't have to be married to be in a you know, valid relationship that is being acknowledged by the state, right? And that gives you certain benefits like taxes and stuff. So I think in, in that sense, it's just another like, you know, widening of like who we include, but then the inclusion still happens on the terms of people in power, you know. But doesn't that undermine the very concept of revolution? In a sense, it, it's just not really a revolution. It's just, you know. It's reforms you know, repositioning of the same people. Um, and I, by the way, just side note, I, I'm a happy person. <laughs> I, it sounds like I'm not a happy person. I mean, I'm, you know, I live my daily life. I'm happy. Um, but yo. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I guess it depends on how you define revolution because I think people often see it as this one time, time event, right? Where it's like, oh, now things are crumbling, falling apart and the revolution is happening. But then what happens after, right? And I think to some extent there are certain reforms, you know, that, that are that are being um, called for that can be revolutionary of their nature, right, if they're truly progressive. But there are also reforms that can actually just feed into the current system and then you're not really moving anywhere but you're just, like, shifting, you know, the, the outlook a little bit. Um, so I think in that sense, like, revolution is a constant thing, you know. It doesn't happen once and then it ends, but it's going to be a constant process. Uh, so are you uh, quoting like the, the Matrix, like the revolution is part of the, the system? I haven't watched the Matrix. I know I'm going to be... Just for the face. audience, my mouth just opened <laughs> up in uh, incredulity. I just want to also say, I mean, I think kind of this idea for, for revolution is, is fantastic. And I think I'm just also curious as to how exactly what this would be you know and maybe it's because it, it it needs to be more organic or needs to i don't know like i'm because at the end really the problem is the capitalist system okay this is a big big issue and what are the alternatives how do we try and manage that and is that really is that the revolution that we're seeking or is there another utopic utopia like yeah world i sure. don't know of course there can be yeah with 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 vision with the right kind of energy yeah too yeah yeah this is there's a lot to it um there are many people in the world right many uh souls coexisting how many now eight eight billion is it? i think it was 7.8 last week yeah so sorry there was one more thing about marriage and this is Olivia <laughs> <laughs> keeps coming back to this you got stuff to talk about <laughs> no what do you mean this is the first time I'm going, going back to it no 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 but it's interesting because I mean yeah I mean I just find it, it is kind of the history of marriage I mean initially it was about this person has this and this other person has this and we will get them to marry so we can have this together this property or this land and it was ownership it was it was not about love. It was about this um, idea of you have a nice 
whatever and I have this these things and let's you know get them to and it was really the the parents whatever that was kind of arranging this in a way and they had their little mistresses and stuff on their side and then the the romantic kind of notion came about where it's like I want to marry for love which is fantastic but at the same time it's also this you know struggle this constant thing of like equality between these partners and how we have to try and manage that these expectations and it's also this really long history um, and something that you know for instance like gay marriage I think this is it's absolutely ludicrous why can't people marry who they love like what is the problem it's all about love I think at the end the problem comes down to religion and the fact that people are actually even though they're promoting or trying to um, preach for love they're not if you're denying someone the choice of wanting to marry someone who they love then you're not for love you know and so I think this is maybe more a core problem with religious kind of idealism and the weird structures that come with that um, and not necessarily the idea of of marriage as as a as a thing even though that has also its baggage because of the the history that it it offers or has and how we're trying to reinvent that in a way constantly because also it used to be you were in a community we don't live in communities really anymore and you could rely on people within this community to help you. And so you don't really just have your partner who is your best friend and your lover and the person taking out the rubbish and bringing the money and, 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 and you're doing the same. It's like fucking stressful. So it's like it's a whole new way that we are trying to, again, make marriage, turn it into something that's a vision of utopia. But it's really hard work. Uh, I mean, I, I, um, I don't think you should write your own vows. Uh, <laughs> I could do it for you. Um, but I would also say, the way I see marriage, it's a form, as the institution, is a form of oppression. But I equally see rom- the idea of romantic love. That is the device that the institution uses to persuade us that that's how you should feel about, feel about somebody in that particular way. You know, and I, I did, you know, romantic love was invented. It's a, it's a, it, it was created in the 14th century, you know, England. I don't know, but it was, yeah, I, I hate England. Don't get me started. This idea of romantic love is an invention. And now we just look at our relationships framed in emotions and structures that are imposed upon us. And I find that highly problematic. And I say that. But I'm, I love people, and I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to say I'm free of all these structures. I'm in it, and I, and I perpetuate it, and I participate in it. Um, so I'm not trying to say I'm better, but I'm also aware that this comes from somewhere else, from people of power who decided it was going to be like this. And we're just the puppets. As, as, a, as a both queer and polyamorous person, right? Someone who believes that you can easily love different people in your life in different ways obviously but be in close and intimate relationships and potentially romantic and sexual relationships with them um, without feeling like it's a competition or it's a you know um, you you have to 
create a hierarchy between these relationships, right? As someone who's, who's, who's believing and also practicing this, I think I agree with how you put it as in like we are taught to believe that this is how love looks like, right? Romantic love that's being sold to us in a particular way. And I think that's a very specific understanding of romance because, yeah, sure, we see it in pop culture and movies, you know, all the time. And they sell it to us not just on Valentine's Day, but generally, like, if you truly love someone, this is how it's going to look like. Um, this is also how you must feel about jealousy, right? And them also loving other people and all that. But I do think in that sense, like, it's that is also where, where like, revolutionary potential actually lies for me, right? Because I, I think um, the way we we classify and, and create hierarchies around people that are connected to us, right? So um, the fact that we, we genuinely do believe that friendship is like of a different nature and different level than someone that you are intimately and romantically engaging with, right? I don't agree with that notion. Like, I, I think friendship is fucking serious, you know? I, I love my friends dearly to an extent that I would never want, I, I wouldn't want to compare my friends with each other, but also my friends with other partners that I have, right? Because each and every relationship is individual, right? And doesn't need to be compared. You know, it can be um, valid uh, for what it is. You don't have to create this idea of like, okay, there's a pyramid and the tip of the pyramid is your one and only partner that you move in, like have a house and kids and whatever. And then, you know, there's friends and then there's maybe other remote family members and acquaintances and all that. That whole structure of how, how relationships are supposed to work, I think that's something that I perceive to be crumbling when I just look at how me and also some other people I know are looking at relationships and it's it's so much more vast and beautiful than that, right? And there's not just romantic love. Like, I think in Arabic, there's at least 13 different words for love, right? There are all these different terms and there's the love that describes you know, very intimate, the intimacy of sharing secrets, you know, that's the type of love. There's the love that is um, so strong that it draws you in and you can't get away from it anymore and you also don't want to get away from it, but it's toxic in that way. That's another word for it. So there are all these different ways of describing love and I think us just using one word for it and thinking that this is what we all feel, you know, and how it must look like, I think that's that's something... Um, that has never really made sense for me and that I um, appreciate having language to express it now, you know, but I think um, to some extent, yeah, that's also something that marriage obviously flourishes on because, you know, they, they sell us this one version. Um, <clears throat> so uh, spiritual guru Eckhart Tolle has said that if uncertainty is unacceptable to you, it turns into fear. If it is perfectly acceptable, it turns into increased aliveness, alertness, and creativity. Uh, this quote was used for our 2020 COVID episode during a round of Agree or Disagree, a game in which our show guests decide to upvote or downvote a quote without knowing who it's attributed to. Everyone unanimously agreed with this quote back then. Is that still the case, I wonder, among our specific group today? Can you repeat the quotes? Yeah. So if uncertainty is unacceptable to you, it turns into fear. If it's perfectly acceptable, it turns into increased aliveness, alertness, creativity. Anyone? Yeah, I agree. For sure. I think it's your mindset. It's the way that you perceive it and the way that you accept it. Definitely. Yeah. I don't agree. I think if you are not sure how to fill your stomach, you know, if there's the uncertainty of 
just the general material conditions of life, I don't think you can, it's a question of your mindset. You know, I don't think it's something that you can choose to just change by thinking about it differently. Um, yeah, so I don't think it's a question of acceptance. And you said, you apparently agreed to this. I I did. Uh, you, you keep were part of that episode. wait. You keep records of the things I say. It was a unanimous agreement. Okay. Uh, in April of 2020, 6:23 p.m. Wow. And he said, yeah. wow. Wow. Um, I think that uncertainty is is not always necessarily associated to real life facts. Where you know the the idea that fear is not necessarily associated to real life facts. I can be fearful of a spider, but that spider is not really dangerous to me. Um, but danger is related to real life facts. Um, so I don't think I answered the question at all, but I felt like saying that. Okay. Uh, so as I mentioned earlier, we like to play a little game around here. It's harmless. Don't worry. Whether you love it or hate it, buckle up for a segment we call Agree or Disagree. So a quick rehash of how this game works. I will present five quotes spanning recorded history related to our theme, Uncertainty. And after each quote, I kindly ask that you all respond with either agree or disagree. And there will be a brief period to justify yourselves after. The, after I reveal the quoted individual. With that said, I present to you our first mystery quotee. Uncertainty is the refuge of hope. The refuge of hope. Uh, disagree. Strongly. Disagree. Also strongly. I feel like this is a very poetic way of putting something that it's got to be interpreted so I don't know mm -hmm. but I guess I also disagree because yeah I'm always suspicious about hope yeah. so this is a quote from Swiss philosopher poet I knew it and I knew critic it. Uh, Henri Frederic Amiel that guy I yeah. hate that guy <laughs> who is that guy <laughs> He's a Swiss philosopher, poet, and critic. Uh, so I take this quote to mean that uncertainty could imply good things are coming as well. Um, the unknown leaves equal space for positive and negative outcomes. I, I, that's, that's sort of what I wrote in the notes because it took me a while. I had to think about this myself. I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer a quote of my own, uh, of myself. Um, <laughs> hope is an idea without a website. No, I, it, it shouldn't have a refuge, refuge. It's a fallacy. It's a fiction. It's, it is dangerous. It is a, a catastrophe. I disagree. I think hope is important. Wait, you disagree with my quote? I disagree. Are we playing a new game? Is it we <laughs> agree or disagree with Nadiso's quote? Yes, of Nadiso? I love it. <laughs> yeah, moving on. Only when we are brave enough to explore the darkness will we discover the infinite power of our own light. Is this a Star Wars quote? <laughs> you, ne you never know around here. I mean, I, I might be pulling from Star Wars. In that case, Mr. Sci-Fi, let's start with you. Ah, I disagree. Yeah, you're breaking my heart. I guess I agree. I mean, 
you gotta dig through some darkness to find out what's happening yeah. in the first place. Whether the outcome is good or bad, then I mean, you know, but strongly agree. Okay, so American research professor and author Brene Brown. But this goes back to what we were kind of talking about, how words, you know, uh, limit us and this idea of darkness. I find that's what the first thing that grabbed me in the quote like that. I found that limiting. That's why I kind of disagreed because this idea that, oh, it was dark. and bad. I think that challenge and growth um, ha happen. That's life. That's living. I mean, and I, I love that. And I don't think it's dark. Um, that's why I disagree. It might be just, okay, are we giving explanations? Are we defending ourselves? <laughs> I feel like I need to defend myself here. Are we doing that? No, you just... Yeah, yeah please. No, no, please defend yourself. Um, I mean, just because no, you're wrong. I'm not going to defend just myself. Just because you're wrong, I mean, it's okay. I am always right. Jokes. <laughs> um, <laughs> madness is the result not of uncertainty, but of certainty. Uh, agree. Strongly, vehemently. Ooh, whoa. Yeah. We're adding intensifiers today. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I get, I, I just, it just reminds me of Albert Einstein's um, quote about, probably going to butcher the quote now but like basically the, the stupidity is if you do something repeatedly over and over again and you expect different results mm -hmm. right so the certainty of the belief the assumed certainty of knowing how something's going to turn out might be madness yeah um whereas if you're uncertain you know you're mm -hmm. open mm -hmm. for, for other things so i guess i guess i agree i have a strange story can i tell the story Are you agreeing or disagreeing? I don't know. Let's, let's talk about that. Right. I kind of agree. I think I agree. But I don't know if it is madness. Maybe it is madness. Maybe. Maybe I do agree. Can I yeah, tell the story? Can I tell the story? Okay. <laughs> This was from German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. Okay. Of all people, yeah. Okay, so the story goes like this. My mother decided to get a tarot card reading done. And within the tarot card reading, it said that I will meet three men. And since then, I always kind of thought, is this number one, number two, or number three? I don't fucking know. And this made me the certainty, right? Because I kind of like, there were lots of things about this reading that were very accurate, And I thought that this is quite interesting. And I, and I even wanted to like, yeah, because it was very accurate. So I was like, I actually don't want to know what's going to happen because it will, it will mean that maybe this is number one and it means that this is not going to work or maybe this is number two. You know, it's like kind of having the certainty already made me like have like a preconceived bias against the people I would meet and therefore not giving it the actual chance that it could have had if I didn't know about this. And then I even thought, I mean, what if you had to know when you would die? You know, maybe you have like, okay, terminal ill, like this is, you've got two weeks. I don't know. I don't know if that's like, I don't think we want to know that. You know, it's like not knowing allows me at least to live much more in the present than knowing i think if i had to know i would yeah i would go crazy i would i would 
Now I do want to know what's happening with you and these three men. Like, I mean, um, yeah, okay. I've been like, I'm not counting anymore. So <laughs> no, but it's, it's stopped. It's stopped. It's by it's by a number, a person, okay. and I don't know if that was which so number. I don't know. I don't know. It's just three men. It's just three men. Three. That, is, that is why I don't go to tarot readings. It's just not specific enough. It's not specific <laughs> enough, but exactly. it's, it's, it is specific mm. enough to make you crazy. Yeah. So. I mean, I will retort with a, a quote of another quote. Um, uh, William deGrasse Tyson, he says, you should know enough about something to know that you don't know anything. Okay. And the idea of certainty is madness because like you know when you were you were young you're like a teenager like you know 17 and you thought you knew everything because you read one philosophy book and you're going around explaining philosophy and politics to everybody i look back on myself like you didn't know shit you know but yeah in the moment i thought i knew everything and i think that we constantly think we're certain but yet the older you got you get the less i feel uh, so entrenched in my positions the more i'm like Ah, there are lots of perspectives on this, you know. There are obviously certain ex- ex- exceptions, but for the vast majority, I don't get into big arguments with people often about stuff because I'm like, all right, I'll listen to your perspective, you know. Yeah. Not Joe Rogan. I, I think that's he's he, he should die. <laughs> okay, we got we have two more. In these troubled, uncertain times, we don't need more command and control. We need better means to engage everyone's intelligence in solving challenges and crises as they arise. I feel like this quote is saying a lot, but not saying anything. I don't know what I... I, I don't have an agree, uh, point, uh, an opinion. Okay. Can you, can you say the quote one more time, please? Yeah. In these troubled, uncertain times, we don't need more command and control. We need better means to engage everyone's intelligence and solving challenges and crises as they arise. So it's a command and control. I think that we're pitting command and control against softer means of uh, finding solutions, you know, rather than, we, were, we talked earlier about force, like to force people to do something. And this is a bit softer. So I think that's what we are agreeing or disagreeing with. I agree. Oh, in that case, I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> no, but intelligent people? What does that even mean? Like, I have no idea what this quote... It doesn't, like, say, intelligent no, no, it doesn't say intelligent people. Well, that's because I'm not intelligent. We, <laughs> we only we need better means to engage everyone's intelligence, to foster intelligence. Oh, that's a bunch of mumbo-jumbo. <laughs> that, I don't even know... Education versus coercion. Yeah. Education <laughs> versus... Co- well... Oh, yeah, that was American author and teacher Margaret Wheatley. Margaret Wheatley. Okay, why I agree is I think it's about... Can I, can I explain? It's, I think it's this idea of not saying these are the rules, you better do it, or else. It's like, rather, here are the things and you can choose and kind of make a decision and based on that, we can hopefully collectively find the revolution that we're seeking, maybe. I don't know. Okay. Finally, the future is no more uncertain than the present. I agree. 
I mean, I guess we did agree early on that we always live and we've always lived in an uncertain state to some extent, right? So I do agree. I disagree. Um, do you want to say the, the quote? Yeah. Who it was? This is from none other than Walt Whitman. What do you think? Uh, you, know, you, you disagree. I disagree uh, because I don't believe that we live in the present. I think that we are, we live in these temporal uh, absurd spaces uh, split between the future and the past. And this present isn't the present. It is just we exist, but we don't live in the present. And so that's why for me, the quote for you, it's just, just, you know, yeah. Or you could say we only exist in the present and everything else is, you know, fiction or history or whatever. Um, do you, I'm not sure uh, how much you know about Scientology. Uh, you didn't expect that, did you? No. <laughs> um, and how they are uh, very focused and obsessed about living in the present now. Ooh, um, so you're putting me into a box. Okay. No, 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 no. I'm not. No, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, not only Scientology. This is like all kinds of meditative practices. Hmm. Uh, very much Buddhist kind of notions. It's very hip nowadays to be present and to try and be mindful. So I don't know. Maybe it's not just Scientology. But okay, let's hear about Scientology. Um, yeah, no, I mean, they, their idea about, you know, just trying to be present in, the, in that moment, I, I why? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I love my, my dreams about the future. I love my nostalgia about the past. That is what makes me, that's what I, the, you know, and that's where I find my clarity, my certainty in those, you know, in those time-traveling moments that we constantly do. And the present is, it, ah, it's barren for me. Mm-hmm. Um, because it is. It's certain. You put this so nicely. I, I cannot not agree. What? Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I do think it's just a matter of, again, words and how do you define it, right? Because for me, the present very much includes the, those spaces you were just speaking mm. about, right? The being in nostalgic or melancholic or even joyful about the past or about something that happened yesterday or about something that happened 10 years ago and also about the future that you envision or that you're scared of or whatever. So I think to some extent it's the same thing um, once again, but yeah. I mean, I think this, okay, it's being uncertain both in the present and the future, right? That's exactly how I take it. Yeah, that's quite literally what it's saying. Yeah, I mean, it's like, because we don't know what's going to happen right now. I could walk out of this, you know, I could just have a heart attack right now. I don't know, I could just, whatever. Like, I could just the walk across the road. I could be hit by a bus. I don't know, there's like all these kind of things. And But it's also, that is kind of still the, the future, but it's the, like, present future. Yeah. It's like very, very kind of quick future. Yeah. It's like the idea, the future is always happening to us. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Well, that brings us to the end of our investigation of uncertainty, of the great unknown, and of this ongoing war, which I can only hope ends as swiftly and peacefully as possible. Wars. Of these ongoing wars. Yes, that's true. Dankeschön, Olivia, Jamila, Naniso, for your thoughtful contributions, your presence. Thanks again to our sponsor, Das Gift. 
Uh, again, it's a wonderful place to be, to uh, perform. Manisa, any, do you have anything to add about Dust Gift? Uh, we do events uh, every night of the week, um, except for Sundays because we're closed. Come and check us out. We are a bar that uh, is uh, for, the people, for the people, of the people, by the people. Uh, we want to support artists as much as we can, and that's why we are proud to support uh, this podcast. Yeah. And thank you, listeners, for being with us. Please check out our other episodes by searching Apple Podcasts, The Wicked Podcast, or at soundcloud.com slash wickedpodcast. If you like what you've heard today and wish to donate to our project, you may do so by PayPaling wickedprojects2017 at gmail.com. Do you all have any parting words to offer before we depart? Thank you for having us. You're welcome. There's one last thought. Um, I'm wondering sometimes whether we choose to repeat history or if history chooses to repeat itself. Hmm. I thought we were done. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Check, I was I'm signing just, out already. I'm checking my phone. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. What? What? We're done. That was the, that was the parting message. Uh, for, thank uh, you, Mark. To, to be continued. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's perfect.